0: you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, and that's where we're going to pick up today. We uh, had time off of our series in First and Second Kings to hear testimonies and baptism last Sunday. Were you blessed to receive those testimonies and just hear what God is doing? I hope so. All right, good, fantastic. Just making sure. And uh, if on your way in you didn't grab the elements, we're gonna have communion as part of our worship together today. So let me just invite you, you can just jump up at any point during the service and grab them at the exits, we'd welcome that. And for those of you at home, uh, just to prepare you, if you need to hit the pause button, you can grab some elements so that you can join us in that part of our worship together today. So just wanted to remind you of that. So we're gonna look into God's word now, continuing this series uh, in First and 2 Kings and learning uh, about the kind of king that we need in our lives and also then the kind of people we are to be in response to the king that we have. So let me pray for us, just that the spirit would illuminate his word today and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make yourself known through your word today. And that's what we need. We don't just need a uh, a repetition of a, of a pattern or of a habit of listening to teaching. What we need is to have our faith bolstered and built up so that we'd be sanctified through that growing faith, Lord Jesus, and so we need to see you through your living word. We pray that you would make yourself known to us. Help us to do what we just sang when we said, we ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriends thee. And we remember that you have, Father, befriended us in your son, and having done so and called us, Jesus, as you have your friends, now you illuminate for us your ways and your will and your nature, and we pray that you would make us receptive vessels for that today, tender before you, just not resisting you in any way. So we turn our eyes to you as we just sang, and we ask you to teach and instruct us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen, amen. Well, I have a friend named Dean Rush, and Dean is kind of, uh, you may have a friend like this, the friend who's done it all, right? Done it all, been everywhere. Dean's a little bit older than me. I worked with him for a little while back in Texas, and Dean had flown in Vietnam. Uh, He had played in the NBA, Uh, with Oscar Robertson, if that name means anything to you. Uh, If you know basketball, that name means something to you. So he played in the NBA. He owned his own airline for a little while. He was a VP for American Airlines. He was personal friends when he lived in San Antonio with Tony Parker and Tim Duncan. Like, this guy had kinda been everywhere, seen everything, done everything. He was just a really godly man. And he told me a story one time about when he lived in Lockhart, Texas, which is a small little country town. It's what you think of when you think of a small Texas town. All right. It's got the main street and the town square surrounding the, uh, you know, the kind of city hall and the whole deal. I mean, it's small town, Texas, maybe about a thousand people live in Lockhart. And so Dean uh, owned an airline. They did like deliveries and that sort of thing. So he had a couple small planes and he was uh, the, he was approached one day by the the head of the chamber of commerce and they wanted to do something for local businesses. And they said, we're going to have like a Lockhart Day, everybody come to Lockhart on a Saturday and all the businesses are going to give discounts and we're going to just try and introduce like, you know, all that is going on in Lockhart, our fun little town here. And they said, what we want you to do, Dean, is if you will, is we want you to fly your plane, your little four seater plane, We want you to fly it at about 200 feet over the center of the city and we're going to give you a couple thousand ping pong balls. And we want you to drop these ping pong balls. Now, engineers among us are just thinking about the aerodynamics involved in this task. We want you to drop these ping pong balls as you go over the center of the city. And they're going to have all kinds of like discounts from businesses and some cash prizes. And it's just another incentive to get people to come. We're going to do this fun ball drop idea. One of the balls is going to be painted red. It's going to be worth five grand. All right. So. Dean says, sure, yeah, we can give that a try. And so he signs up for this. Now, what he did not tell his wife, Vicky is that his son, Ryan, who was 11 at the time, would be the one leaning out the door of the plane <laughs> to drop the ping pong balls. But you know, to this day, I don't know if Vicki Vicky actually knows about that. And so uh, Ryan's, Ryan's full-grown man, he survived this moment in life, all right? And so, uh, so th- about two hours before the whole shebang's about to go off, Dean gets word from the FAA, and don't quote me on all the heights here, but I think he was going to fly at 200 feet, and they said, You cannot fly over the center of a city at 200 feet. That is unacceptable. You must fly at 2,000 feet. And so now the task has gotten quite a bit harder. All right, so there's a little bit of a breeze. The 11 year old has got to figure out the timing on when to drop these things. And so they take off, and Dean tells me. Now, Dean's like in his 80s now, so don't get him in trouble, but he didn't fly at 2,000 feet. He probably flew at like 1,200 feet. That's still a multiple of like, you know, 10 over what he wanted to do. And so he's flying about 1,200 feet. And he circles a couple times, and he can tell the wind is up a little bit in town that day, and so he says, sure enough, he goes, okay, Ryan, it's time, let's do it. And so they make their circle, and they make their pass, and he goes, Ryan, open the door now, and he drops all the ping pong balls, and to this day, no one has ever found a ping pong ball in Lockhart, Texas. If you go there, that red ping pong ball is somewhere, and I don't know if the offer of five grand is still good, it's probably been 20 years, but... Maybe just paint a ping pong ball red and show up in Lockhart at the Chamber of Commerce and say, I found it. Maybe you'll get five grand. You can get some good barbecue while you're there. It's the barbecue capital of Texas, which means it's the barbecue capital of the world. That's right, thank you. I've trained you well in my eight years here. Man, I'm so pleased. Have you ever had a moment, like my friend Dean, where something sounded like a really good idea only to find out it was really not a good idea? Have you had these moments in life? You think it sounds good? I mean I like I thought it through some of you are even planners and you like broke out the excel spreadsheet and you did the you did the math and you're like this is a great idea and somehow when the moment comes the great idea ain't so great right our text today first first kings chapter 12 13 and 14 is a section of first kings which is all about spiritual decline because the people and the kings in particular involved embrace worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. What sounds like a great idea ends up to not be such a great idea. Godly wisdom gets replaced with worldly wisdom and when it does, it always leads to spiritual decline. For God's people, for kings and those in authority and in power, and friends, for you and for I. When we allow worldly wisdom to crowd out godly wisdom according to his word, Without exception, what happens is a spiritual decline for us. So here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna look at two kings today. We're gonna look at King Rehoboam of Judah and King Jeroboam of Israel, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And what you're gonna find is, I'm gonna give you a summary. I just wanna like tell you the story of the three chapters and how they unfold. And then we wanna zoom in, if we can, and look at two specific snapshot moments, one from each of these kings' lives. To see how, for Rehoboam, worldly wisdom takes hold in the form of believing that he needs to use power harshly rather than gently, rather than to serve with power. He embraces a worldly idea of power, that he should use it to lord it over those whom he leads. And with Jeroboam, what we're going to see is that the worldly wisdom takes hold in the form of convincing him that he needs to trust in his own strategies and devices to get ahead in life rather than trusting in God's promises, rather than trusting in God's promises. So I wanna show you those two snapshots of their lives and invite you to see how God would invite you and I as his people to not walk in spiritual decline, as we're gonna see in this passage and through the rest of First and Second Kings, but to walk in a robust spiritual life, to walk with our king, our true and better king, in such a way that we find that our lives are full of power and joy and peace and hope and all the things that Jesus promises to us. So let's look at those things. I said first we need to do an overview. So just follow with me if you can now, the way the story goes. If you remember when we left off two weeks ago in chapter 11, we had seen that Solomon sort of started well and then by the end he's not doing so well. And we saw the cracks, the fissures, in the foundation when we saw him begin to embrace wives from these other countries who worshiped other gods. And then by chapter 11, the seeds of that, of those unrighteous choices are full blown and he's now setting up worship to false gods by the end of his time as king. Now at the end of chapter 11, God comes to Solomon and he says, I've appeared to you multiple times. I've promised you that if you would walk with me and worship me only and lead my people faithfully, that I would have your sons on the throne for generation after generation and it would go well with you. And I'm still gonna honor my promise to David, but you will now be taken off the throne and I'm gonna divide the kingdom. That's what he tells him in chapter 11. He sends a prophet named Ahijah. And Ahijah shows up and he says to Solomon, I'm gonna tear from you 10 tribes And that's going to be the northern kingdom. And for the sake of my servant David, you will keep two. You will keep Judah and you will keep Benjamin. So from this point forward in the book, this is a tragic moment of of massive spiritual decline among the people of God. We will now not have one king over the people. We will have two. There will be a king of Judah and there will be a king of Israel. Israel being the northern kingdom, Judah being the southern kingdom. And we will, every time we come together, pretty much, be looking at Who's king in Judah and who is king in Israel, and how are they acquitting themselves as kings? So that's what happens at the end of chapter 11. Then we come into chapter 12. He has promised in chapter 11, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He says, "I will make you the one who I give the king the northern kingdom to." And so Jeroboam then gets chased out of town into Egypt by Solomon. He lives there for a while and then Solomon dies. And when Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. Again, still just over one kingdom. Jeroboam comes back. They have a discussion. Through the foolishness of Rehoboam, he then fulfills the prophecy of the Lord and loses the 10 northern kingdoms. We start focused on Rehoboam and what he does. The snapshot of his life. Then we zoom over, if you will. We ping pong ball over. Do you like that little tie in to the illustration? We ping, you're with me. You're catching on, good job. We ping pong ball over to Jeroboam and now the focus is on him and what he does. And we might think that there's gonna be this really great moment where Jeroboam has received this promise from God. And he's gonna trust him and he's gonna establish the northern kingdom and he's gonna walk faithfully with him. And as God said, he would just bless Jeroboam's children and their children's children and they would be faithful kings over Israel and the northern tribes. But that's not what we find out. What we find out is before Jeroboam has even had a chance to begin to reign, he's already trying to do things that dishonor God. And that's the snapshot we're gonna look at today. God then sends a prophet to Jeroboam in chapter 13 and he warns him. And he even when Jeroboam tries to strike out at the prophet and God strikes him physically because of it, he then heals Jeroboam and shows him mercy. So there's this moment where we think, okay, Jeroboam's received the mercy of God. Maybe he's gonna get it. Maybe he's gonna see it. There was also a moment right before we left our focus on Rehoboam where he is gonna try and go take the kingdom back from Jeroboam. He's gonna try and reunite the kingdom. And God says to Rehoboam, don't do that this is from me. I don't want you to do that. And Rehoboam listens and doesn't do it. And so now we've got this moment. here's the tension in the middle of our, if you're just reading this all in one sitting, you're going to get this moment of tension where you're going, maybe Rehoboam's going to get it. He's going to see God's instruction. He's followed it. Maybe he'll end up repenting and being faithful. And now Jeroboam's received a warning because he's begun to walk in ways that aren't good. And maybe he's going to listen. And then in the middle of our passage, God hits the pause button. We're not gonna talk much about this today. And he focuses on a prophet. A prophet shows up and he's the one who tells Jeroboam that trouble is coming for him if he doesn't turn around. And as if to say, I'm just gonna leave that there for a second so that you can sit with that and wonder what is Jeroboam going to do? I'm gonna focus on that prophet for a minute. And there's this interesting story in chapter 13 about the prophet and his disobedience to the Lord. And here's the whole reason for that. In the coming weeks, you're gonna find that the prophets are gonna become really important characters. You may have even heard of some of them, Elijah and Elisha. Has anyone heard these names from the Bible? All right, so they're gonna become the focus of the chapters that come. We're actually gonna lose focus on the kings for a little while, and we're gonna focus on the prophets, and here's why. Because the kings are unfaithful, so God sends prophets who are faithful. They're going to be the ones that represent faithfulness throughout the book. They're gonna be the hope in the book. But as if to say, even the prophets have to obey my word or they face the consequences as well. You don't get some special uh, dispensation of acceptance just because you serve in this role. If you don't do what I say, you face consequences as well. So this prophet in chapter 13, he obeys at first and then he doesn't obey and he faces God's disciplinary hand because of it. Now, all that is there to introduce the prophets, which are gonna become very important in the chapters to come. But then it's like we hit the unpause button and we go back to Jeroboam. So here we go. How's he gonna do? Church, how do you think he's gonna do? Not well. It's highly discouraging. The next thing that happens is Jeroboam continues to walk in his sins. He refuses to turn around. Friends, God so often will discipline us and show mercy to us so that we would turn around and not keep going the way that we're going and Jeroboam ignores him. And sometimes so do we, yes? He says, no, 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 turn around. Jeroboam won't do it. So he sends another prophet. And this time there's grave consequences for Jeroboam's family. And he says to him, you will no longer have anyone on the throne. I am gonna cut off your line. In fact, all your male children will die now as a result of your unfaithfulness. And none of them will come to the throne. He's gonna have one son who comes to the throne for like a blip, on the radar, and then no more children will exist for Jeroboam. He goes from the promises of God in chapter 11, I'm gonna put you on the throne, to becoming the symbolic reference through the rest of the entire book of first kings and second kings of the unfaithful king. He becomes the representation of it. So every time a king is unfaithful, almost without exception in the book, they will say these words. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now how would you like it if your name became synonymous with unfaithfulness? If every time someone referenced your name, Trent, they walked in his ways and what that meant was they failed royally. I would hate it if that's what my name came to represent. Would you hate it if that's what your name came to represent? That's what's happening to Jeroboam in this passage. He will be the representation of all that is bad, of all that is wicked, and of all that is unfaithful. Now. We hit the unpause button and we return to Jeroboam and boy, were we disappointed. But now we turn to chapter 14 and we return to Rehoboam at the end of chapter 14. So now here's our bookends of our section. We started with Rehoboam. He's unfaithful. The kingdom is taken from him. But the last time we saw him, he listened to God and he didn't go attack the northern kingdom. So maybe, maybe when we come back to his story, we're gonna find that he's been repentant and he's walking in faithfulness. You think maybe? Unfortunately, no. We return to Rehoboam as the bookend of our, of our section. And what we find out is not only is he not being faithful, he has given in to full-blown idol Baal worship. He has set up false altars, false idols, and he's leading the people to worship a God who is not God. And that's where we find Rehoboam when we return to him. And that is the end of his story, unfortunately. Now, that's the overview. Everybody with me so far, Yeah. Okay, now let's zoom in, like I said, and let's look at one story from each of these men's lives and what we learn from them about how spiritual decline results from the embrace of worldly wisdom in place of godly wisdom. So chapter 12, let's look at verses one through 16. Let me read the story and make a few comments as we go, all right, so here we go. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So, The people went away. All right, pause real quick. Let me, a little commentary here, all right? So the first thing we see is hopeful. Rehoboam has come to the throne. He's from the line of David. It is as it should be. The kingdom is still one. But we do get a little hint that When the queen of Sheba in chapter 10 had said, Solomon, all your people are so happy because your wisdom is so profound that as you lead and rule over them, they can't help but prosper and thrive. But we find out that at the end of Solomon's reign, something else has been going on. Wisdom has started to be depleted. And so now what's happening is Jeroboam with the rest of the northern tribes come to Rehoboam and they say to him, Solomon was taxing us unduly. In fact, we are paying more than the southern kingdoms, because they're Solomon's people, and we're feeling that it's unfair to us. That's what they're essentially saying. We're bearing a heavier burden of the forced labor and of the taxation in the kingdom than we should be. He's put a heavy yoke on us. Would you please consider taking it off? Now, get that Jeroboam, in spite of the promise that he's going to receive 10, 10 tribes of the kingdom in the previous chapter is willing to come underneath Rehoboam. He comes as if if you'll answer us well, we'll serve you. He's willing to come underneath him in service. You with me so far, yeah? All right, so there's no disruption in the succession plan. Rehoboam even wisely asks for three days to consider their request. Is that wisdom? Yep, he sits and he weighs it. Now let's see what happens next. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Shout out to the wisdom of old men, yeah? (laughs) Got the same reaction in the first service too, I love it. Absolutely. There's something, I mean, there is a word to be spoken here of the wisdom that comes with age if you walk with the Lord. That's what's being said to us here. Pay attention. Now, let's remind ourselves that growing old does not always mean growing wise, right, friends? We grow wise if we walk with the Lord, if we obey him, not just because we get older. The old men give good counsel. And do you see what their counsel is? Don't be harsh. Don't lord it over those that you lead, be gentle. Serve them with your power. That's why your power exists. You are the king to serve the people, not to get the people to serve you. Now, unfortunately, some young men are gonna start talking, but look at what happens next. Verse eight, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him. We're told that he abandoned it before he's even gotten the counsel of the young men. In other words, what we're supposed to learn is his heart was closed off to wisdom. He wasn't listening. He abandoned the counsel the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. In other words, he had foolishly surrounded himself with foolish young men. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. That's a weird thing to say. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's brutal. Is that good advice or bad advice, church? I'm so glad you recognize that. Well done. Yeah, it's terrible advice from these young men. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. Now get this. We're gonna repeat everything we just heard. He's repeating it because he's going, you can't believe how foolish this is. I'm gonna repeat it so that you can actually grasp how foolish it is. You need to hear this again. And he says, they came to him on the third day as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which, he, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shelonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Let me pause there and say something about verse 15. We don't have time to fully unpack this, but this is, a, this is a reality, a biblical reality that every biblical Christian needs to get really comfortable with. There's a tension in the scriptures. Again and again, we will find that God says, I am doing something and I'm using these human beings and their decisions and their choices and their operating to do it And I'm the one causing it, but they are culpable. They are responsible. You will find that again and again and again in the scripture. To us, it can be hard to make sense of. It can feel almost like a contradiction. It is not. God is dictating and telling you, I am sovereign and I control what takes place in all the kingdoms of the earth. And those who make those choices yet are still responsible for the choices that they make. You with me? All right, so I know, that's a huge like matzo ball that I just put out in front of you and I'm just gonna move on from it, all right? But that's a concept that you need to get really comfortable with as a biblical Christian. Now, he goes on verse 16 and he says, and when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went, to their tents. That's a euphemistic way of saying the kingdom has now been divided. They're going to establish Jeroboam as their king and they're going to say line of David, Rehoboam, you can have the southern kingdom, but we are no longer with you and this is one of the most tragic moments in the history of the people of God because a king in his foolishness chose to ignore godly wisdom and appeal to worldly wisdom or operate in worldly wisdom. Now let's make a few comments here for us because there's a lesson to be learned here about how we use power and what worldly wisdom around power looks like, right? Whatever authority you may have, you may be a big brother, big sister. You may be a president of a club at school. You may be a boss, a CEO. You may just you know, uh, be a parent Right, You have authority, you have influence, you have power. And there is a line of thinking within worldly wisdom that says power exists for power's sake. Power is preeminent, power is the primary concern of people. In fact, there are whole schools of thought that get misled about how often power is misused. But at the end of the day, the world views power as a zero sum game one that is to be possessed at all costs, that power exists for power's sake, and that is the exact antithesis of biblical wisdom around power. Biblical wisdom around power says, power is only ever given for the sake of serving. You have power to serve others, your brothers and sisters in the Lord and your neighbor. That's why it exists, and it's the only reason why it exists. You do not serve the Lord if you use power for your own sake or for the sake of power but you serve the Lord faithfully and well if you use power to serve others. Always, only, always. Yes, church? It's it's a simple thing, but it's hard. It's really hard. Now, why does Rehoboam ignore the wisdom of the older men in favor of the wisdom of the younger men? And let me give a warning to those of you who are younger and who are finding yourself given power, given authority. And again, it may be a small amount, maybe a big amount. Here's what I wanna warn you. There's something in our youthfulness before we have had time to mature that causes us to want to use power and to lord it over people in such a way. And here's what it is. It's vanity and insecurity. Vanity and insecurity are typically the sins of youthfulness. And because when we're young, we are insecure that we can actually possess power and walk in it in a way that our power will be secured without us having to put our thumb down on the people over whom we have power that God will sustain us in our power. And if we use it in a way that honors him, we're good. There's also a vanity in us that wants to show how strong we are. It wants to show how strategic we are. It wants to show how powerful we are. And so we say things like, oh yeah, you think that was bad? Wait till you see what I can do. I'll discipline you with scorpions. We take up those kinds of, I hope none of you have said, I'll discipline you with scorpions. But you've probably done the moral equivalent at some point. Now, friends, here's what I want to say to you, particularly my young friends. Guard yourself. Guard yourself against receiving power at too young an age. Say no sometimes. I'm not ready for that. The humility of that is remarkable. Don't assume that power belongs to you. Whenever you have it, always remember this simple lesson. Remember the lesson of Rehoboam. Power is to be used to serve. That's what the old men say, right? If you will use the power you have to serve others, but Rehoboam in his vanity and in his insecurity can't hear it. He doesn't have ears to hear. It's why it says he abandoned their counsel before he ever even received the counsel of the young men. He didn't have wisdom. He didn't have ears to hear godly wisdom because he was too consumed with his own possession of power, his own security, his own insecurity, his own vanity. So friends, recognize that, and we have to walk in a different way. I mean, listen to this too. If you've ever read the book of Proverbs, anybody read the book of Proverbs? The whole book is set up as instruction from a father to a son, and at some points, a mother to a son, saying, hey, listen to me, and in your older days, you won't go astray. Listen to what I have to say. Now, who wrote most of the Proverbs? A man named Solomon. Who is whose father? Rehoboam. Rehoboam's dad wrote these words in Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Who is Rehoboam not listening to? His own father, not just the counsel of the older men in his kingdom. So here's the thing. I said this whole book, this whole section is about spiritual decline, sort of a precipitous spiritual decline. Here's the thing. Let's bottom line it, friends if you don't use whatever power you have to serve, whatever time, talents, treasure God has given you, if you don't use it to serve, you will spiritually decline. That's the lesson for you. You will spiritually, you cannot just say, well, I'll serve when opportunities arise. You must have a plan for it. You must be intentional about it. You must have a way of saying, I have time, I have talent, I have treasures, I have these things. They are all in the service of the Lord. He is my king. I will give to him, and this is my plan for doing so. I will teach the Sunday school class. I will be a part of the community organization where I'm trying to share the gospel with those around me. I will give my time to the local schools. I will invest in our youth ministry. You get what I'm saying, yes? Without exception, if you have no plan to serve with the gifts God has given you, you will decline spiritually. There's no middle ground. But if you will use them to serve, what will the opposite be? You will grow. You will grow and you will thrive spiritually if you will give yourself to the service of the Lord. That's why you have the things you have. If you use them well, you grow. If you don't, you shrink back and you decline. And there is no in between. There's no, I just stay in the same place. That doesn't exist. Everybody with me so far? That's the snapshot from Rehoboam's life. Let's look at a snapshot from Jeroboam's life, shall we? So go a little bit further down into chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 25. So where Rehoboam forgets to serve, Jeroboam forgets to trust. Now remember, Jeroboam has promises from God, specific promises about becoming the king. And here's what we find. It's one thing when we've all felt the pressure of life and at moments shrunk back, from doing what we should have done. Have you been there? Yes. You should have done it. You should have spoken it. You should have risked it. You should have, you know, taken the challenge up and you shrunk back because it was, there was pressure and it was difficult. And here's what's interesting about Jeroboam. He's going to shrink back before anything ever happens. Before there's any difficulty, before there's any challenge to his authority, he immediately does not trust God, but trust that he can come up with a strategic way to hold on to his kingdom. Here's what we find. Verse 25, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, which is what the law requires them to do. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. This is like day one on the throne and he's already freaking out. Do you see it? So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Have we seen this before? And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel And the other he put in Dan. Dan is as far north as you can go in Israel. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel, the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. All right, now I don't want you to get lost there towards the end about all the kind of dates and the months and the, here's what I want you to see. Immediately, what commentators think is that Jeroboam is not so much saying, let's worship false gods. He's saying, let's take some of the things from the world around us and combine them with our own worship. It's what we call syncretistic worship. Rehoboam, in just another chapter, we're going to find out is saying, let's worship Baal. Let's set up altars to Baal. Jeroboam's not going to do that. He's going to say, hey, Israel. Your gods, we can represent them through this golden calf that I'm going to make. And I'm going to put one in Bethel, I'm going to put one in Dan, and we're going to go there to worship because this is his strategy. I don't want them to worship the biblical way that God commanded because they'll be too tied to their brothers and sisters in Judah. And then they'll return and reunite the kingdom. So I'm going to set up new priests that aren't in, according, in accordance with the word of God. I'm going to set up new temples so they don't have to go to the temple that God made and blessed. I'm gonna create a whole new system of sacrifice so that we don't obey the sacrificial system. Essentially, I'm gonna take and mirror through feasts and priests and temples everything that is true worship, but I'm gonna just tweak it enough so that it keeps people aside from the true worship of God and keeps them loyal to me. Now, here's what's interesting about that is that one, there is today a version of Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, which attempts to take worldly thinking about things like power and sexuality and identity and put them on top of a biblical worldview, and you can't do it. Without exception, a biblical worldview contradicts those things. That's why it's so imperative that every Sunday we come together and we open God's word and we say, what is the truth according to your word? So that when we have to think about current events and current affairs and philosophies that are out there that we know how to examine them according to what God's word says and take what is right and good and reject what is false. Because you cannot put worldly philosophies on top of biblical truth without it completely contradicting and undercutting biblical truth. You with me? So that's super crucial to what's happening here. That's what Jeroboam is doing. He's trying to introduce sort of subtly False forms of worship that will ultimately lead the people off track. And he's doing it because he doesn't believe what God promised him. God had promised him, You will be king over these 10 tribes. I've torn them away from, from Rehoboam and I'm giving them to you. And in spite of that promise, the first thing that he's doing is trying to figure out how to use his own strategy and his own wisdom and his own ways to shore up and to secure his kingdom. Now, friends, how often do we do the same thing? Do we say, I know that God has promised me that I'm his son or his daughter. I know that he's promised to watch over me and keep me, to provide for me, to protect me. I know he's promised me all those things, but you know what? I'm feeling pretty isolated and alone, so I'm gonna go after this relationship that I know is sinful and I don't need to be in. I'm gonna pursue this method of parenting because I'm freaked out about the choices my kid is making rather than trust that God's word is true and good and I can walk in it and it will, it will lead my family well and wisely. I mean, just go scenario by scenario by scenario, right? And just recognize how often we fail to trust what God's word says, which is that all the promises of God are what for us in Christ Jesus? Yes and amen. Think about what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says when it says, through the promises of God, we begin to bear the image of God. In other words, it says, you wanna grow in faith? Know what God has promised and then walk in those promises. And as you do, what will happen is you'll become more like Christ. You become partakers of the divine image is, what, is how Peter says it. Partakers of the divine image through the precious and very great promises that we have in Christ Jesus through his immense power. Now, When we take things in our own hand, especially when we do things we shouldn't, then we're failing to trust God. So, again, the spiritual decline theme, here it is. If you take matters into your own hand to work strategically your own way, you can't help but spiritually decline. There's no way to go, well, I'll work my own pathway, but I'll still stay spiritually strong. You will not. Spiritual decline will be the result for you and for all those around you, by the way. Let's not be overly individualistic here. You recognize that the choices you make impact everybody else around you, yes? They do. Like your choices impact our life together as a body. My choices impact you in ways that, go, that are unseen, but they're real, right? And they take hold over time. Your choices impact me That's part of being a body together, right? The hand is not unimpacted by the eye, Everybody with me? All right. So now, look, great lessons here to learn. Like, don't be like Jeroboam and don't be like Rehoboam. And we could just be like, okay, great, got it, right? But let me build up your faith because what we need is not just to go, don't be like Jeroboam and don't be like Rehoboam. Let me show you why you have the power to walk in a way different than the way they walked. Let me show you why you have the power and the joy and the hope of being able to trust God in the way Jeroboam did not and also in the way Rehoboam did not to embrace uh, God's ways and his will for his life, to use power well. You have the ability to do that and here's why, because you and I have a better king. We have King Jesus who unlike Rehoboam, rather than say, I will use my power for the sake of my power. And the only one who ever rightly in all of human history could say, I have every right to be harsh with my power. I have every right to be authoritative with my power, chose not to be that way with his power, but to use it to serve us, to lay down his life for us. That's His declaration of the purpose of power. Listen to Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. Just one text that illuminates this glorious goodness of our King Jesus. In verse five, we find this word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Friends, do you see our king? He lives in you. The one who said, I will not use my power to serve me. I laid down my power to serve you. I will come and embrace not just your humanity. I will embrace the most horrific form of death known to man to pay penalty for your sin. That's how power is to be used. And you are his, he shows you, he guides you. You are not sentenced to continue to let that anger and harshness flare up in you as a parent. You are not sentenced to continue to lash out at your neighbor when things don't go your way. You are not sentenced to use your authority at work harshly. You have freedom in Christ who has not just shown you how to live but has taken up residence in you and now frees you from that former predisposition towards harsh use of power and anger and declares to you, you are mine and I am the king who uses my power to serve and now you will be like me. That's who you are. Now let's... Turn to King Jesus and how he shows us the opposite of what Jeroboam showed us. Because do you remember in Luke chapter four, just before Jesus' ministry begins, he goes into the wilderness and the enemy comes and tempts him. And do you remember the second temptation, the middle one? The devil says to Jesus, I've been given all the kingdoms of the earth. And if you'll just bow down and worship me, it will all be yours. Do you know what that offer is? That is, don't trust God's pathway and plan of suffering by which you will take up the name that is above every name. Don't trust that. You can have that without the suffering. You can have it without the pain. You can have it without the sorrow, without the isolation, without the weight of the wrath of God on you. Just bow down to me. Our glorious king, do you remember his response? It is written You shall worship the Lord your God alone. Silence, devil. You have nothing to offer me. I will walk the pathway of suffering that my Father has laid out for me, because I trust him. He has sent me, and I will do his will. And had he not, we would be lost. But he has saved us and redeemed us because he trusted the Father in the darkest of nights. Now listen, friends, get the gloriousness of his suffering because it is what will build up your faith. Listen now. He obeyed and trusted God all the way to the point of separation from the Father to the point of saying, where have you gone? I'm all alone under the weight of sin. I am in utter darkness. You have forsaken me. I have no ability to see you. I am under the crushing weight of it all. He was isolated from the one whom he had only known perfect fellowship with for all eternity and he was separated from him and he trusted him even still. So that now, when you encounter your dark night and you find yourself saying, how do I trust you? I feel alone. Where are you? I don't feel hope. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. You will only ever always hear back to those words. I am right here with you. Because he was separated, you never have to be. You will never be asked to trust God in the absence of God. You will always be able to trust God in the presence of God. Because of Jesus, that's our king. That's our king. He trusted to the last measure. And God has given him the name that is above every name. Friends, in particular, for those of you who have not placed your faith in Jesus, I've been praying for you, asking God that today would be the day of salvation in your heart and in your mind. Just here, you don't have to serve yourself and you don't have to serve any earthly king. You don't have to look any longer to any other thing for protection and power and provision. You have a king who offers it to you. And he is a king who has trusted the father perfectly and can show you how to do it. And he's a king who has laid down harshness in favor of service. And he invites you to come under his lordship and be free from the anger, be free from the angst, be free from the harshness. He invites you, as Ian said at the beginning of our time together, into a flourishing and thriving like you have never seen and never known. And he is gentle and lowly and he welcomes you. He welcomes you. So church family, what moves us forward more like Jesus, a little bit more each day, is faith. It's setting our eyes on him and seeing his glory and his beauty. It's not just learning lessons from old kings who did bad things. It's setting our eyes on him and say, yes, there he is. He's the one, adoring him, rejoicing in him. And as we do, we become like him.